This morning, uh, we talked about the resurrection, and that's something that a lot of people are talking and thinking about today. And when you talk about the resurrection, there are really a couple of different uh, ways that you can address that and different things that might enter into people's minds. Uh, You can, for example, as was mentioned uh, earlier this morning in the Lord's Supper talk, you can talk about baptism. Baptism is a picture of resurrection, and it's described that way a number of times in the New Testament. Um, You can talk about the resurrection of Jesus, which we spent a lot of time talking about this morning, and what that means for the foundation uh, in the existence of the Christian faith. The Christian faith would not exist without the resurrection of Jesus. But then also you can talk about our resurrection at the end of time. And even when you talk about that, there are different pictures that people get in their minds. Um, Even among Christians, I think there's some confusion about what the resurrection is. Uh, There is some idea that We have our bodies and we have our souls or our spirits. And when we die, our spirit goes up to be with God. And some people uh, think of that, in essence, as resurrection. Uh, That's life after death. And that's kind of what we're hoping to, to, to have happen. Others focus more on the fact that, no, there's actually your body physically comes back to life again. Like your body that was placed in the tomb, the, the, what you are in right now, what you are, what you are right now, is re-given life, and you emerge as a new person in this body. Uh, it's been glorified, it's been tra- transformed, but you have your body, and you're in your body for eternity. And, uh, and then there's discussion about where exactly that happens. Um, well, what I want to do tonight is talk a little bit about uh, what the resurrection of Jesus means for our resurrection. And I would say those two ideas of resurrection that we just talked about, the idea of our spirit leaving our body to go be with God, and the idea of our physical resurrection from a tomb, are both taught in the New Testament. And they are both important parts of understanding what happens when you die. Um, I believe the first part of what happens when your physical body dies is that that life-giving spirit returns to God, Uh, is that 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 immaterial part of who you are, yourself, your soul, your very being in essence, returns to go be with God. And that is a, a time that, according to Paul, is, is better than the pain and sorrow that we have in this world now. But that is not the ultimate hope of the Christian. The ultimate hope happens at the return of Jesus when the resurrection occurs and that soul is reunited with your body, and your body does come back from the t- uh, out of the tomb. That your body does come back to life. Uh, in John chapter five, Jesus describes this in uh, some pretty uh, pretty uh, clear language. A day that is going to come when you will come forth from the tombs. Uh, in John chapter five, in verse twenty-eight, and you could really back up to. It's a really incredible discussion uh, that's going on through here, but we're just going to pluck this small part out out of it. But in John chapter 5 and verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who did evil to a resurrection of judgment. Notice in here, there is you're actually coming forth out of tombs and there's real resurrection. The idea of the spirit continuing to exist after death, that is not what you would use as the word resurrection. That is what you, that's what you would call death and life after death. Like death is when your, your soul and your body are separated. Uh, so to talk about that is to talk about death. 
But the Christian hope is resurrection. And the word resurrection actually means your body coming back to life again. Uh, And that's what happened with Jesus. So what happened with Jesus becomes the picture of what happens for us. It becomes the picture of what, what we experience. Now, the idea of the soul continuing to live on, that's an idea that you can find in uh, ancient Greek thought. You can find that in Plato. It's Platonism. And that's, that's not an idea unique to Christianity at all. Although I do think that that plays a, a role in our thinking about uh, our death and the end of time. But what separates Christianity from that, what got Christianity mocked, is when you actually talked about the body that is buried, that rots, and is dead, and is lifeless, and turns into the dust, and is eaten by worms, saying that's what comes back to life again. Uh, when Paul went to Athens and he preached, they were willing to listen to him preach. He, he criticized uh, having temples, he spoke about one God, he spoke about a lot of uh, things that would have been offensive to Greek religion. But he didn't start getting mocked until he mentioned the resurrection from the grave. Now, Greeks would have believed in the immortality of the soul. They would have believed that the soul lives on after death. But when he talked about resurrection, they begin to scoff as that's a ridiculous idea. And so you can see that there is a distinction between those things. In Christianity's hope is found in actual resurrection because the body that God gave us The creation of this whole world and of the bodies that we have in it is very good. When God made mankind, he didn't say, okay, I'll just put them in this temporal, you know, fleshly dying sack of meat. And then once they're dead, finally they can be freed from that and go on and live in a soul. No, he actually thinks that your body and what he made is good. And so that's what comes to life again. And that has an eternal part in God's plan. The body you're in right now does. So what we're going to do uh, for the lesson this evening is we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read through what Paul says, not about life after death in general, but specifically about resurrection and the Christian hope of resurrection and what the resurrection of Jesus means for us and some ways that we can think about what our resurrection will ultimately uh, entail and what it will be like. There are 58 verses in this chapter, and there's no way I'm going to be able to answer every question or chase every rabbit because there's some really fascinating stuff, and there are some strange things that pop up that I don't even know that I have a a good explanation of. But uh, we are going to go through and we're going to try to follow Paul's line of reasoning. And in essence, what you'll see is he argues, based on the resurrection of Jesus, which all Christians accepted, that there is... um, reason for hope in our resurrection as well. And that seems to be something that at the church at Corinth, not everyone bought into. Some people did believe in the resurrection. They certainly believed in the resurrection of Jesus because they were Christians, but they didn't believe in our physical resurrection. They may have believed in the immortality of the soul. Uh, Maybe they believed nothing happened. Uh, I I think they probably would have had some beliefs in an afterlife, but they were denying the actual resurrection. And so that's what Paul is going to take issue with. And he's going to argue about the nature of the resurrection, the order of the resurrection, the priority of the resurrection, but then also the meaning that that gives to our lives now. 
Resurrection isn't just something to keep in your head for one day to see what happens with your body after you're dead. Resurrection should change the way that you live now. And Paul ends chapter 15 with that really powerful idea that you should have hope and confidence and fervor and be diligent and to toil and to labor and to give Christ your all now because of the resurrection that he has in store for you. So let's begin with uh, chapter 15. We're going to begin with the foundational idea of the gospel itself, which includes the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the uh, appearances of Jesus. And Paul is going to start with that because that's something that, as Christians, everyone would have agreed with. Everyone's going to agree at the church at Corinth with uh, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus and his appearances. And Paul's going to say, you can even test this. So uh, we'll read the first couple of verses here. He says in verse 1, Now, brethren, I make known to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, uh, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the words that I preached to you, except you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. If you're following the sentence structure, we often summarize this as death, burial, and resurrection. But if you're looking at the ands, it's death, burial, resurrection, and appearances. Uh, that's part of the sentence as well. And so that's, that's part of his uh, brief summation of the gospel right here. But what he says is that this death, burial, and resurrection is in accordance with the scriptures. And that's an interesting idea also. Because if you just read from Genesis through Malachi, there's not... There aren't many clear passages uh, or any that just directly prophesy about a future Messiah who's going to be killed and then raised to life again. There are some passages that uh, you you can read after seeing what Jesus did and begin to find, okay, Perhaps this is pointing to that, and the New Testament does that, and it changes the way you would ordinarily read some of those passages, and you begin to see them in new lights, and you begin to see resurrection in there. So Paul does say it is in accordance with scriptures. You also have the general storyline in scripture of suffering followed by glory, like we talked about uh, with the idea of Passover. You have the suffering and the death of Egyptian slavery followed by new life of Exodus in, in, a, in a promised land. And, and that there are re-readings of the Passover that make Jesus the Passover lamb. And, and so there are, there are certainly ways in which the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus is according to the scriptures. But it's not necessarily according to one scripture. It's according to a reading of all of the scriptures in view of Jesus. And you begin to see them in a new light. And you begin to see different nuances and different uh, uh, elements of those scriptures that reveal information about Jesus that without the resurrection, you probably wouldn't have seen before. Uh, And so uh, that actually happens in, in the Gospel of John. The passage where we were this morning, I'll just quickly quote or uh, read it, but it's in John chapter 20. And it's really interesting when Peter and the beloved disciple make their way to the tomb and they peek their heads inside and they see that it's empty. It says that they saw and believed. Then verse nine, for as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. 
So like even Peter and, uh, and uh, the beloved disciple, it's not until after they see the empty tomb that they, it says they believed, and then it still says, for they have not as of yet understood the scripture. The scripture takes, this is a fascinating fact about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is a belief that the early church held that did not come from the Bible. That belief did not come from the Bible. And it's the belief that the early church then uh, told people about and people became part of the church. But it's a belief that developed not based on the Old Testament because in the Old Testament they didn't believe that. And in, in the disciples, Peter and in, in the beloved disciple, even after the death of Jesus, didn't yet believe in the resurrection. It's not until they saw the empty tomb and then they saw the appearances of Jesus. Like Thomas, until he saw Jesus, he didn't have faith that that was going to happen. He didn't believe that because it didn't come from the Bible. And you say, well, what about the New Testament? Well, the belief didn't come from the New Testament. The belief existed and was written in the New Testament. The reason the New Testament talks about the resurrection is because the people who wrote it believed in it. So where did the belief come from if it didn't come from the Bible? It didn't, they didn't get it from the Old Testament, but they wrote about it in the New Testament. That belief came from an event, which is the resurrection. <laughs> like the belief in the resurrection came from the resurrection. And that sounds simple, but that's a strong evidence for the resurrection. That it actually came, the, the reason there was a massive shift in theology and of thinking about the Messiah and about the end times came because something happened. It wasn't just reading the Bible. Something actually happened 2,000 years ago that changed the way these people thought. And then when they wrote what became the Bible, that was a huge part of it. That's the foundational part of it. Uh, and so that is one of, of many evidences that an event actually occurred that changed the thinking of these people. You know, it's one thing to, you're told your whole life, one day there's going to be a Messiah who's killed and then he's raised from the dead. And then you come to meet Jesus and he seems like he's the Messiah and then he's killed. What are you going to be thinking? hey, this is what they said was going to happen. Wonderful. We're, we're right on track. Now I just need to wait for the resurrection. And then the resurrection happens and you say, he proved it. He is the Messiah. That is not what the disciples were going through at the death of Jesus. They thought, hey, we're going to have a Messiah who's going to take over the world and we'll all reign in glory with him. And this is going to be wonderful. And, and they watched him. And then instead of that happening, the Romans killed him. And they lost hope. And they didn't believe and they didn't know what to do, and they were scared, and they were in fear. Even after the tomb was found empty, they're still terrified, and they're lock, locking themselves in a room. Or you can read Luke. The disciples are on the way discussing with one another what these things mean. Some women saw they saw, saw him raised from the dead, but they don't believe that. And they say, we had hoped that he would be the redeemer of Israel. It's like it's a lost hope. They, that's what they wanted, but instead he got killed. It's like every one of the Gospels presents it that way until they actually see him, and then they're able to believe. And I think that's one of the reasons why it not only mentions the death, burial, and resurrection, which surprisingly, even though it had not been seen, is according to the scriptures, but also his appearances. Because it's really once you get to the appearances that people start to have faith in it. That's an important part of the story also. And so, he mentions here this list of people that Jesus appeared to. He mentions in verse 5, 
He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, verse 6. And after that, to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, though some have fallen asleep, which, by the way, is a fascinating detail, to mention 500 and then to add that most of them are actually still even alive today. Some, some have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. Why add the detail about them still being alive except to say, and you can talk to them about what they saw. Like these are actual eyewitnesses of that event that changed everything. You can talk to them and you can find out what happened. You can ask them about seeing Jesus. That's an important part of the point he's going to be making. But he continues on in verse 7. And he appeared to James. Now, James is an interesting one, and so is Paul, because James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul have something in common. Neither of them were believers in Jesus uh, as the Messiah during his life. These are people who even, uh, who until they encountered the resurrected Lord, did not believe. And so again, you go back and, and if you are, if you are thinking that, and this is one of the, the theories that some people have about like secular people who do not believe in the resurrection, they still have to explain why it is that early Christians came to believe in the resurrection, especially when they recognize it didn't come from the Bible. Uh, it came from an event. Well, what event took place? And so they try to think. And one of the theories that has come up with, and this might sound silly, but it is taken seriously by a lot of people, um, is that they so badly wanted their Messiah to not have been crucified and to still be alive, that after his crucifixion, they had hallucinations that they did see him. And they, that that's what gave them faith. And they thought, okay, well, maybe he is alive. And, and so then they started telling people he is alive because of these hallucinations. And there's a bunch of problems with that. Uh, one of them is the empty tomb. It's like, if someone has a hallucination, you can still go to the tomb and say, well, no, he's still in there. And so, like, a hallucination doesn't empty out a tomb. Uh, you also have that to deal with. You have the fact that so many people are having the same hallucination. That doesn't tend to happen. You know, if I walk up to you and I say, hey, that was a really cool dream we had last night, uh, you're going to think I'm strange because dreams and hallucinations and those types of events are ordinarily things that individuals have on their own rather than something that you have as a collective group. Uh, There are a lot of issues with that. The fact that not only did they have hallucinations, but they actually ate with him. They touched him. Like, he physically was there. And... You know, a lot of people have hallucinations. Those are real, but they often realize very soon afterwards that they were hallucinations. That, like, there's a word hallucination for a reason because we recognize that that's a different thing than a real-life event. If you have hallucinations, they would have said, I had a hallucination of Jesus last night, or I had a vision of Jesus. The, the New Testament talks about visions. People do have visions. People do have hallucinations. That happens. That is not what they're saying when they see, say that they saw and had repeated appearances and conversations and experiences with the resurrected Lord Jesus. This is not what happens. This is not the same thing as a hallucination. But when those people came to have those sorts of, uh, of beliefs in Jesus and they came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, uh, it was because he actually appeared to them. And if you were to take that hallucination idea seriously, which you shouldn't, um, another major problem you're going to have with it is people like James and people like Paul who were mentioned right here. 
who they wouldn't have had that hallucination because they didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, Jesus not only appeared to those who were happy to see him, he also appeared to those who had no uh, belief in him as the Messiah and were not followers at all. And then their lives were transformed because they saw him. And so again, they didn't get it from the Bible. They got it from an experience with the risen Lord Jesus. They got it from an event. And that event is what changed the world and what changed the rest of the Bible. So Paul mentions James and to all the apostles. And then verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so Paul discusses his own apostleship, how he came from being a persecutor to an apostle because of the grace of God that was given, that he was able to actually see and experience the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he, he met him. Um, you don't meet the Jewish criminal who was crucified years earlier without being transformed by that experience. Uh, he met him afterwards and saw the resurrected glorious body. So we are about to read the words from an eyewitness of the resurrected body of Jesus about what our resurrection and body will look like. It's pretty neat. Uh, we, are, we are invited into a very unique scripture and like the whole passage uh, writing in the whole history of mankind where someone who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus is going to tell us about those events. Um, so as you keep reading, look at verse 12. He is going to move uh, from giving some evidence and some description and early testimony about the resurrection of Jesus to talking about how essential understanding of the resurrection of Jesus is for everything that we do as Christians. Verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now remember, they are not talking about the resurrection of Jesus per se. He's talking to people who do believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they don't believe in the general resurrection of all people at the end of time. And he's saying, why would you say there is a resurrection of Jesus and yet deny the general resurrection? If Christ is preached as being raised from the dead, why, are you, why do some of you have a problem with the idea of resurrection? You already believe in it from the foundational resurrection. Why not believe in the rest of them? Uh, verse 13 for if there's no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You realize that's, that's the implication of what you're saying. If you're saying, ah, there's no resurrection, well, then what does that mean about Jesus? He was the guy who started the resurrection. Uh, he was the first fruits, which he'll go on to say. So if you deny resurrection, then you're denying what happened to Jesus. And if you deny what happened to Jesus, well, if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. That passage and passages like this are one of the ways you know they do believe, they have faith in the resurrection of Jesus, but they're denying the general resurrection at the end. And he's saying that's a really silly thing to do because if you deny a resurrection, then even Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, why are you here? Your faith is completely in vain if, if you're going to deny that. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. We're talking about him and his missionary companions and the apostles. Because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ... They're not asleep. They've perished. In verse 19, And we have hoped, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
He's saying if you deny resurrection, you can't just say everyone except Jesus. If you deny resurrection, you're denying the resurrection of Jesus. And if you do that, then everything that the apostles and missionaries of Christ have said has been foolish. Your faith in Jesus has been in vain. You're still in your sins. Everything that's been said has been a lie. And we are actually false witnesses preaching against God. And the people who you love who have died, then they've perished. They're gone forever. And we, of all people who give our whole lives to this mission, if it's just in this life alone kind of wasting them then we are of all people most pitied so paul hinges everything on the resurrection of jesus and that as the first fruit of the general resurrection at the end so the the way that he argues from okay so we've established how essential it is to believe in the resurrection of jesus he's now going to make a crucial point that can sometimes be missed when we think about the resurrection and and this is this really is important Because this establishes why the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our faith. And it's different from things like the resurrection of Lazarus. Or the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Or the resurrection of the widow from Nain's uh, son. or, Or these different people who Jesus raised. Why isn't their resurrection the foundation of our faith? What is so different about what happened with Jesus? Um, If Jesus hadn't been raised... Would those other resurrections and those other miracles, would those become the foundation of our faith? Paul doesn't seem to to imply that. Something different happened with Jesus than with all these other ones. And I've heard different different explanations of it before. And uh, like, like for example, Jesus lived to never die again, whereas they lived to die again. Uh, Or Jesus raised them, but Jesus... No one, no one grabbed him and raised him up. Jesus was raised by God. And, and so there's some, and I think each of those kind of bat around the truth. They're really close to it. But, but there is a, a way of thinking about this that in my mind makes a lot of sense that includes those things, but is a little bit different. Um, and that's what Paul says right here in these next couple of verses. In verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he noticed, notice he uses the phrase, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ as the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands the kingdom of uh, to the God uh, and Father, and uh, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Okay, so the way that Paul describes it is the first fruits of a harvest. And so once the first fruits started, which is uh, like the, the, first, uh, the first part of the harvest begins to, to be ready, then everything else follows. So what Paul's saying is when Jesus was raised, that was the beginning of the resurrection at the end. That was the beginning of the final resurrection. It's not just that Jesus was raised and that was a really great miracle, so we should believe in him. That, that's true. It's not just that Jesus was raised, but no one else did it. So that makes it an even more incredible miracle. That, I mean, while that is true. It's Jesus was raised and that was not supposed to happen until the end of time. So what does that mean? It means we've started the end of time. It started with Jesus. And we're living in it now, and we're waiting for the rest of the harvest to come. But the reason Jesus' resurrection was different, I like to think of it this way. You have life, and then you die right here. 
and then you have death. And all of these other people, like Lazarus, he died and then came back to life until he hit that again. What Jesus did is unique because he lived and he died, and then he pushed through the power of God all the way through death to the end of death, to the life, the glorious resurrection life on the other side. He, he did what no one else did by defeating death. He didn't just come back to life to, to die again. He is the first fruits of resurrection on this side that is eternal and glorious in a new resurrection body. He's the first fruits of what we are longing for. And so it's not just that Jesus was raised. It's that Jesus is the first of the final resurrection who initiated and launched the end of days in which we are now all living. And no one else had ever done that before. That is something that started in Jesus. So you don't need the resurrection of Jesus to happen in order to believe in resurrection. Uh, we know that's true because prior to the resurrection of Jesus, there were people who believed in resurrection. Uh, the Jews, not all of them, as I said, if you read the Jewish Old Testament, there's not a lot in there about it. I do think there are some passages that certainly hint towards resurrection, uh, and Jesus uses some and, and they talk about it. But if you were to even look at Judaism in the day of Jesus and ask, did Jews believe in the resurrection? Kind of depends. If you're talking about like the ruling Sadducees, no. I mean, the priesthood, no. Like, who do you consider to have official Jewish doctrine? Is it the Sadducees and the rulers of the temple? Then your answer is probably no, they didn't. The Pharisees, yes, they did. Jesus, yes, he certainly did. And Jesus sides with the Pharisees on that. But even in the days of Jesus, whether or not people were raised from the dead at the end of time was a debated issue. Among Greeks, it was foolishness. Among Jews, uh, some did, some didn't. It was, it was debated. Uh, but some people thought it was foolishness. Some people even tried to trap Jesus. The Sadducees did in Matthew 22 on his beliefs in the resurrection because these Jewish leaders did not believe in the resurrection. And so resurrection was always debated, but you could believe in the resurrection without Jesus. Christians don't just adopt the belief in the resurrection from the Jews. What's unique about the Christian belief in the resurrection is that it already started. And so it's not just something we're waiting for at the end of time. It began with Jesus. And we're now living in the time between the times. We're living where the, the, this world and the age to come have met in us. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult time to live. And we try to live uh, as people of eternal life and as people of heaven and, and living the ethics of the kingdom of heaven here on earth where you will see aspects of God's new life and resurrection popping up and you'll see uh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven all around us. But that will grow up with the tares of this world and you'll often see a mixture and you'll see glimpses of the good and glimpses of the evil and we're waiting for the evil to be fully defeated and good to reign supreme forevermore. But we are living at a, a time where the old world hasn't quite passed away and the new world hasn't quite fully come and that's where we find ourselves. The resurrection of Jesus started it, but it has not been fully brought to realization yet. That will happen with our resurrection. And so Paul is describing the order of events, and we find ourselves in a unique time period that no one knew was coming. So like when Jews thought about the resurrection, they didn't think about the Messiah dying and then rising and then initiating this time period in between the time. They thought about the general resurrection at the end. Uh, and not all of them believed in that. We, as Christians, believe in that because we believe that it started in Jesus and we are now in those last days and we don't know how long they'll last. But we know the resurrection's coming because it already started. 
And, and so that is, uh, that is uh, in my mind, a crucial difference between uh, some of the views about just life after death or views about the general resurrection or the Christian view that through Jesus the resurrection has started and we are waiting for it to come to its fulfillment. As you continue to read... Paul will uh, give a couple lines of evidence now, not just for the resurrection of Jesus. He's already discussed that. Now he's talking about, if that started it, what, do the rest, what will the rest of the harvest look like? What about our general resurrection? And he makes a couple of points for way, reasons that they should believe in the resurrection. If you look at verse 29, here's one of them. And this is a strange one, uh, so, so bear with me. Uh, in verse 29... He says, uh, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? And then the next line of evidence is in verse 30. And why are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by uh, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, that I died daily. For if... Uh, From human motives, I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus. What does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So so Paul uses a couple lines of reasoning here. One of them is the persecution that he's suffering. It's like, why would I be suffering immense persecution if there's no reward to come after this life? It's like, one of the reasons I'm willing to endure now is because there is life to come. So that's one of the lines of evidence that he uses. The other one is those folks who baptize for the dead. Why would they do that if there's no resurrection? And that's the one where we say, who does that and why? Um, Is that something, what are you talking about? Uh, So that passage has become the the subject of a lot of of debate and discussion, and even some uh, Christian groups practice uh, things like baptism for the dead. And uh, something that, you know, I can't give you a full explanation on what Paul is talking about here, because Paul doesn't give a full explanation of it. He merely mentions it as something that church would have known about. But I will say there are a couple of things that I find interesting about this passage. Um, one of them is we, need, we should be careful when you hear about something, like the baptism of the dead, then assigning significance to it and meaning to it that's not actually written in the text, and, and then trying to practice what you have come up with. So we don't actually know what, what this means. I know some people who think that, and I don't think it's this, some people think this is just a metaphorical way of talking about baptism. Because uh, kind of like, you know, you, you are baptism, you're dead, and then you're baptized, and then you're raised up to new life. And so baptism for the dead would be the spiritually dead, the spiritually dead sinner who is baptized. And he's baptized and raised up, and now he has hope of eternal life. And so why would he do that? If, uh, if the dead are not raised, why would you go through baptism? That doesn't seem to be the way Paul normally describes Baptism, And so I, I don't know. I, I, I think you're just trying to avoid a sticky issue by going that route. Uh, maybe that's it. But, but I'm led to think he actually is thinking about people who are baptizing for people who have literally died. Um, but what does that mean? And why, why are they doing it? Uh, are they thinking that the benefits of baptism will then be transferred over to the person who is dead? Um, there's no, nothing else in the Bible that would suggest that could happen. And Paul here, if you read what he says carefully... He doesn't say anything favorable about the practice. He also doesn't condemn the practice. He just mentions it. He mentions it as something that people do because they believe in the resurrection. And so uh, 
He doesn't tell us, are you thinking that someone who died unforgiven can then become forgiven? Is there, only, is there a subsect of dead people who you could be baptized for? Or is it just for any and every dead person? Could, could you just baptize one person 300 times and think about 300 different people who have died and all of them are saved? All of that seems to be um, problematic with Paul's view of salvation and eschatology and all of that. Um, what I think is really noteworthy about this passage is the pronouns that he uses here in this, uh, in this section. If you're reading through 1 Corinthians 15, start in verse 1. We're not going to read through the whole thing, but just pay attention for a second. Uh, verse 1 says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preach to you, which you received, how you stand, how you are saved, if you hold fast. And you read through the whole chapter, and you're going to see, look at verse 11. Um, Whether then it was I or they, we preached, and so you believed. Look at verse uh, 14. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain also. What words does Paul use when he talks about himself or the missionaries or the apostles? He uses I or we or our. And what words does he use when he talks about the church in Corinth repeatedly? You, y'all, depending on translation. Uh, But uh, he he uses second-person plural. When he gets to verse 29, he switches to third-person. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are they baptized for them? We don't even know who's doing this. He doesn't say, otherwise, why do we baptize for the dead? That's what he says every other time he's talking about something he does. And he doesn't say, well, I mean, why do you guys baptize for the dead if you don't believe in it? If that's something the church at Corinth was doing, that would be the way that he would say it. Who's he talking about here? Well, again, that's a question we're not even told. We don't even know if this was a Christian practice. Or maybe there was a group outside of the church who that was a common practice in Corinth, and that was something they did. Or maybe, it's, uh, maybe it is a group of Christians, but it's not either Paul or the church at Corinth. It's something that they know about. And Paul doesn't say that it's something they should be doing. Instead, what he's saying is, even if what they're doing is wrong, at least they are believing in the resurrection. Why won't you believe in the resurrection? I mean, if the people who baptize for the dead believe in it, and we don't agree with them, then why would you uh, refrain from doing it if you actually are committed to, to sound teaching into Christ? Again, we don't really know, but there's a lot of possibilities with the text um, that, that we should be careful on assigning any certainty to what it should be doing. We certainly probably shouldn't create a new Christian practice and, and teaching out of it. But his point is that things are being done on behalf of the dead, like baptism. Why? Because there is a belief in the resurrection for the dead. You guys should adopt that belief. You should believe in the resurrection of the dead also. That's why I suffer every hour, he says, because of the resurrection. So, having said that, um, he uh, then moves on to ask the question in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Now, this is, this is harsh, because to me, it's like, that seems like a perfectly reasonable question, and I'm kind of curious about the answer to it. How are the dead raised, and what kind of body do they come with? I want to hear what he says, but instead he says in verse 36, you fool. So I think, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't ask that question, but I want to. It seems reasonable enough to me, but I guess, I guess Paul disagrees. But uh, he says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, 
And that which you sow, uh, you do not sow the body uh, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and uh, to each of the seed its own kind of body. And then he talks about different kinds of flesh, and he ends up making the point that basically the type of body it is is whatever seed you plant. Just like any, any, anything you plant in the ground, you should expect the produce of that to look like that. And so if your body is sown into the ground, what's going to come of it is going to be your body. Now, it will be changed because there's different types of glories. There's the glory of animals. There's the glory of humans. There's the glory of the sun, moon, and stars. Your body will change in glory, but it will not change in its essence. You you will be your body. Uh, And so he says in verse 42, so also it is for the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown perishable, and it, the body, your body, is raised imperishable. That's you coming out of the tomb. It's changed in whether or not it's perishable, but it hasn't changed in what it is. It's your body. And in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. And we, all of us, I experience it more every day, frustratingly so, like the dishonor and the growing old of this body. And there are things that, that I used to be able to do so much easier than I can now. I need to exercise more. But, uh, but it's amazing the rapidity with which my body is declining. And uh, he says here that that is part of the dishonor and the perishableness and uh, the weakness that our body is sown with. If you look at verse 44... He says, it is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Now here, I think we can get confused also because we want to, we want to define those terms in, uh, in, in, with a view towards whether or not it's like physical, like you can grab it, or spiritual, like you can stick your hands through it. And that's not the distinction Paul is making by physical and spiritual. One way you can know that is because he uses those wor- uh, words earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you look at verse 14, I think this is going to be a really helpful interpretive key to what Paul means. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, earlier in the same book, he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Notice the distinction between the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man is the one animated by the things of this world and, and, and looks to the things of this world and doesn't even care about the spiritual things. But the spiritual person is the one who's animated by the Spirit. He's the one who, whose life and, and views come from the Spirit. And what Paul is saying is, in this world, when our physical weak bodies die... Those are natural bodies, given their life and strength and animation from this world. But when they're raised, yes, it's still your body. And this has nothing to do with whether you can grab it or your hands go through it. It's raised a body of the spirit, a spiritual body. And so it is, uh, again, it's not physicality is the, the distinction. It's where do you get your life juice from? the natural world around you or from the spirit of heaven. Uh, You can, I mean, if you look at verse 47, he says, uh, the first man is from the earth, that's Adam. The second man is from heaven. And so he ends up making this distinction, you know, that Adam and Jesus both had like physical bodies, uh, but one of them was animated from the earth and the other one from heaven, uh, from the spirit of God. And that seems to be the point that he is making. And so, This body, 
which is weak and perishable and dishonorable and earthly and natural. This is a flesh and blood body that will decay and that will not be part of God's eternal plan. Instead, in verse 50, he says, the flesh and blood is not what inherits the kingdom of heaven. Verse 50 uh, also says, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. That which dies is not what you'll see in the kingdom of heaven. It will become imperishable. And then I want to read verses 51 through 58 before we bring the lesson to a close. This is, I think, a beautiful picture of what our ultimate hope is. This is what we're longing. Not death, which is where our bodies die and our soul leaves. Death is actually the enemy. And that's what's going to be destroyed. That's what's going to be overthrown. And our bodies will receive life again. In verse 51, he says, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But then this perishable, when it has put on uh, the imperishable, and this mortal, when it has put on the immortality, then will come about what is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a great day coming. There is a resurrection coming where this perishable will be changed and transformed and put on imperishable. And then, have you ever seen a movie or something where a defeated army is being mocked? by the victorious army. A soldier who has won is mocking the one who has lost. That's what you have happening here. Only instead of it being one army to another, death is being mocked. Death, who thought it had so much power. Death, who has reigned supreme on this earth for such a long time. Death, which stays in the back of every one of our minds and sometimes at the forefront of our minds, knowing that it ultimately will touch us also. Death loses its victory. Death loses its sting. And we say, you know, you can read some Psalms where the Jews were told, well, where is your God now? Well, here we're saying to death, where's your victory now? Where's your sting now? That power you thought you had, where did it go? It's gone. You, you, you had your day in the sun, and now we have an eternity without you. We have an eternity where you are left behind. If you read the book of Revelation, death and Hades are a character, and they are thrown into the lake of fire. They do not make it out. Their destruction comes, and that's what the resurrection is about. Not just giving life, but actually destroying death. So what does that mean for how we should now live? Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What you do now matters. If you died and everything you ever did died with you, and that was the end of your story, it really doesn't matter what you do in this life. It's temporal. You'll die. Everyone you know will die. Everyone you love will die. Everyone will die. Eventually this whole earth would die. The sun will uh, burn out, and the universe will just continue in decay and ruin and darkness forever. And ultimately, whether you did a good thing or a bad thing makes no difference at all. Death is the end of the whole story of uh, life without resurrection. And if that's the case, then it doesn't matter the way that you live. But if you believe that there really is a day of victory coming, 
then everything you do now has significance and value and meaning before God. So be steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain and that it matters and that it has eternal significance. In fact, decisions that you make now will influence eternity. And if we can help any of you make the decision to become a child of God this evening, to put on Christ in baptism, please let that be known and come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.